When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, Dr. Z, today I have a returning guest, Dr. David Persing, Dave Persing, DP, Diamond Dave, the Chief Medical Officer and Chief Technology Officer at Cepheid. Welcome back to the show, brother. Thank you, Z. So now we had you on, it feels like there's been a pandemic between us, brother. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's been a minute. Maybe a couple. A couple. Yeah. The reason um, the reason we talk on the show and not, you know, we're homies off the show, but on the show is because you, Cepheid is a major, major, major PCR testing company. Like I will say the PCR testing company for during and prior to COVID. And you have a lot of insight and um, technology to actually bring to bear on the next evolution of this thing. Mm -hmm. So when you said what you were doing now, I said, oh, let's talk again. And it sounds like you're doing now a PCR test that's rapid that actually covers four things, um, COVID, RSV, and some subtypes of RSV, flu A and flu B, all in one test. So yeah. let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah, so we call it, affectionately, we call it Fluvid, which, <laughs> uh, which um, started out last year. We were all expecting a big sort of onslaught of influenza and COVID last year, which to almost everyone's surprise didn't happen. Yeah, that was um, something, right? Yeah. You you and I sat here and we were like, okay, the winter's gonna be a nightmare. And it yeah. was, Yeah. but purely COVID. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And who knows what the reasons for that are, but um, you know, probably a combination of social distancing, masks, kids not being in school. Um, kids are often the incubators of influenza. And um, so didn't have that source of incubation last year. But you know, worldwide, it was a, a major phenomenon to not see a flu season. Do, do you think viral interference with COVID was a factor there, or no? It's possible. Yeah. I think you know when you when you look at the way viruses uh, hit the um, immune system, they activate um, the innate immune responses um, that are characterized by interferon production, uh, both systemically and in the airways. And it's quite possible that that by having a previous viral infection that there may be induction of those interferon, antiviral interferon pathways that can actually reduce susceptibility to other viruses during a, a window of time, ill-defined at this point. But it's the concept of viral exclusion uh, is actually based on the concept of, uh, of innate immune responses and what they might do to protect against other viral infections that might be happening around the same time. See, that's fascinating. We talked about that on a show a while back, a few months ago, where did flu go? And I think it is multifactorial. Like you mm -hmm. say, schools are a big part. Yeah. So those kids are incubating, but this viral exclusion is fascinating. You throw up an innate, a non-adaptive, non-specific yeah. immunity in the form of interferons, and it has this halo shield effect against other viruses. You wonder if there was an evolutionary give and take with viruses where they're out trying to outcompete each other. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in a, in a previous, uh, previous life, I worked on um, uh, vaccine adjuvants uh, that would actually induce immune responses. And one of the 
projects we worked on with support from the U.S. government was a nasal vaccine that stimulated the interferon response in the nasal airways and worked as an adjuvant uh, to induce um, antibody responses to a protein that was delivered at the same time. In, in the nose in, as well. In the nasal spray. Ah. And, um, but the surprising thing was that within one day of administering that nasal spray, which induced the immune response, and well before any antibody responses were detectable against the protein we were delivering, we saw protection against influenza in a mouse model. And that actually was, it stayed on for a couple of weeks after the initial uh, delivery of that nasal uh, vaccine. So it was, it, it amounted to a fast-acting vaccine. You got innate immune protection during the window period of time it took to develop the adaptive response, which provided long-term protection. So it was really pretty interesting stuff. We published on it, and it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. It seems to me that that is incredibly applicable to our current situation with Delta, yeah. where you have a lot of viral replication in the nasopharynx, but even if you're vaccinated, you might still get infected because innate defenses in the, the nares and the nasopharynx are maybe not jazzed up. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, are, is anybody else working on this stuff? I think there are several companies that are working on mucosal uh, vaccination, but I think they're pretty far behind the yeah. injectable forms right now. That's what I've heard. So, yeah. okay, so that's fascinating. We may touch back on that, but I wanna go back now to your four-in-one test because there are a lot of people who ask me like, what, what's going on with testing? Like, first of all, are we going to be able to catch variants that are new that are different enough genetically that your PCR test, which is taking a piece of genetic material and trying to match it with what, you know, what we expect the virus would have, what if it doesn't match and it's still COVID, but it's a new variant? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That's an ongoing challenge with any RNA virus. Um, RNA viruses by nature genetically drift. They're really prone to doing this as part of their adaptive ability. Um, <clears throat> we didn't see much variation early on with COVID, but as time has gone on and, and herd immunity has built up in certain populations, there's been selection for, for variants. Um, immune selection is not the only story, though, because we're seeing variation in regions of the virus that are not subject to immune selection. We've, we're actually seeing variation in some genes that, um, where you see genetic changes that don't affect the protein sequence. Mm. where the genetic change occurs in the third position of a codon that doesn't affect the translation of that codon, it's still the same amino acid in the protein, but it's varying. And why would that happen? Huh. Well, it may relate to the fact that these viruses are adapting to become more effective replicators. Huh. And by changing a codon, they may uh, better adapt to the availability of transfer RNA pools in our cells. Uh, so there are different, different transfer RNA uh, concentrations in cells. And so to maximize their replication, they're gonna pick the transfer RNA pool that's in highest abundance to really feed their replication within cells. So this is one theory for why we're seeing a lot of variation. It's not just immune selection, it's variation to become maximally um, productive and to maximize its ability to spread. 
because every time you get that advantage, there's that's propagated uh, further within the population. Okay, that's fascinating. So you're not just changing spike protein. You're not right. just changing other viral proteins. You are changing actually non-expressed parts of that DNA that actually would change how it interacts with transfer RNA and other things within the cell yeah. that might confer a selective advantage in reproduction. Yeah, these genes are expressed, but they but the codons that are affected are not always, don't result in an amino acid change. So wow. the bottom line is, we think that it's really adapting at multiple levels to maximize its uh, its ability to replicate and propagate. Man, and uh, Delta in particular, is there anything about Delta that does take advantage of that that you know of, or is there something specific there? Yeah, who knows what the combination of factors is. There's there's a lot of spike protein changes that may offer an advantage. Uh, there's probably other changes that offer a replication advantage. Um, but the combination of those changes has really uh, allowed it to become the dominant variant right now. So when you talk about variants uh, and you talk about genetic targets you want to pick for diagnostics, it's hard to predict which ones are going to vary. And it's hard to predict how fast they're going to change. Mm. Um, I, I call it the 1% rule. This is not the 1% that managed to avoid taxation. This is the 1% that managed to avoid detection. Ah. So for any given target, single target, there's roughly 1% of variation within that target that would potentially avoid detection. So... Um, we first encountered this with influenza in 2009, mm -hmm. where we saw some variation happening within our single target for influenza. And um, a lot of diagnostic companies had trouble keeping up with the 2009 H1N1 outbreak. A lot of the rapid antigen tests fell to around 40 to 60% sensitivity, uh, missing a whole lot of cases of H1N1 2009 because of variation within the, the protein targets. Uh -huh. We uh, were afraid of that happening in our assay, so we just said, you know, to hell with that. We're going to gang up on this virus. We're going to put in three targets to cover influenza A and add a fourth target to provide additional avian coverage, all within the influenza A family. And yes, you might have 1% that could escape detection within any single target, but then you have, if you have four targets, you've got 1% of 1% of 1% of 1%. And that ends up to almost nothing. Oh, right? I, I did the yeah. math wrong. I thought that was a thousand percent. No, that's so, exactly right. Yeah. So, so how many targets did you have for flu then? So now we have, we have four targets for influenza A. Okay. Uh, which um, really de detects not just your seasonal influenza strains, but also strains of pandemic concern, H5N1, H7N9, the avian, avian strains that could emerge um, are covered by this approach of combining targets. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so we've, done, we've now done the same for, for COVID, for SARS coronavirus 2. We've gone uh, from a two-target assay now to a three-target assay, uh, 1%, 1%, 1%, it really ends up being a, a very minuscule number of viruses that might escape detection. Well, wow. So so now, and just to clarify for people who don't really know the genetics of this, when you say targets, you're saying this is the sequence of 
viral RNA that you're able to recognize with your test, that's one target. Yep. Yeah. That's right. And so here's a question. So what would a variant need to do to evade your test? Would it have to have enough changes in each of those targets to be in the 1% in each of those targets to then evade the test as a whole? Right. right. So if a variant had all those changes simultaneously, then that would obviously be a problem. But that's not what we, what we see. We see these targets are unlinked ah. between viral strains. We don't find viruses that have all three regions affected by mutation. Mm. Uh, they may occur within one virus at one site at a low level, but we don't see all three happening at the same time. Got it. Okay. Now here's a follow-up question to that. Uh, does having more targets increase the rate of false positives? No, it doesn't. Um, all the data shows that all it really does is help avoid um, false negatives, which is something we like to try to do, is yeah. to avoid uh, false negatives, especially for sick people, patients showing up at the hospital, uh, showing up at clinics uh, who really need a diagnosis. We want to avoid false negatives. Yeah, because then you end up sending them back out with COVID. Yeah. yeah. We don't want to relive the days of 2009 H1N1. Right, right, right. Um, you know, relate, relating to that, do you have a sense of what your sensitivity and specificity is for your various... Uh, yeah, it's... Um, for COVID, let's say. Yeah, it, it's comparable to um, the uh, reference laboratory tests that usually claim in the nobody's perfect but in the in the mid to high 90s for sensitivity and specificity mm. um and so and and these reference lab tests that use pcr are often cited as the gold standard for detection of the virus so what we've done is to take that reference lab test um, um that you know needs to be run in a central lab either in a hospital central lab or in a uh, send out um, setting where you send a sample to uh, a lab across the country in some cases. Um, we've taken that same technology and put it into a cartridge so it's automated, can be run close to the patient and on demand. Mm. Um, so that's that's really the difference is is taking that level of sensitivity and specificity and putting it into a point of care decentralized tests that can be used for managing sick patients. Right, outpatient facilities, you can have the gen, is it gen expert, is that what it's? Gene expert. Gene yeah. expert, right, yeah. right. I like gene better than gen, it reminds me of Gen Z, which is, <laughs> yeah. I just feel bad for Gen Z, they're so anxious. Gen you know? Zoom, yeah. Gen Zoom, yeah, yeah. the iGen. Um, yeah. So, so relating to that, then a follow-up question would be, what about, um, it used to be that you guys were like going right into the brain, basically, yeah, to swap. Yeah. Where are you now on that? Yeah, everybody started off that way. We, we, we thought that was the only way to detect it. Um, what we found is that, um, that with really sensitive methods, you can actually get away with just a nasal swab. You don't have to go all the way back to the, the brain tickle, as they, <laughs> they called it, with the nasopharyngeal swab. Still uncomfortable, but much less uncomfortable much less. than nasopharyngeal swabs. Yeah, it's still the gold standard to go all the way back there. But it, when you have a sensitive test, you don't lose very much in sensitivity by going to a nasal swab. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How does your test? Because so many people are getting these rapid antigen tests. Yeah, and you talked about antigen test failure in H1N1 during mm -hmm. 2009. The protein yeah. changes, and suddenly the antigen is not recognized. 
what's going on between antigen and what you're doing in PCR? It really comes down to viral load. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the antigen tests do a good job in symptomatic patients who have high viral loads. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for influenza, children have higher viral loads than adults. Mm-hmm. So the antigen tests uh, did better in 2009 uh, for influenza in children than they did for adults. Mm-hmm. Um, Adults, especially elderly adults, were the ones getting missed with the antigen tests. It was all based on viral load. So that during that period of peak replication during symptomatic presentations and um, maybe just before and just after, you can detect it with the antigen tests. Whereas if you wanted to detect it days earlier or days later, maybe for a patient who is showing up in the hospital at, you know, after first getting symptomatic a week ago, and now has inflammatory complications. But no viral load. But, but hardly any virus on board. That's where this technology really comes in handy because antigen tests often miss those cases, those late presenters uh, that uh, would otherwise be detected by a more sensitive method. So um, I think to give yourself a bigger intervention window uh, to, to prevent somebody from getting into, the, into a transmission pathway or um, also to deal with the, the, uh, the late presenters who mm-hmm. come in with inflammatory complications. Uh, molecular methods still are the gold standard for those cases. Now, for school testing and airport testing and that sort of thing where you want to you screen out people uh, to, to prevent transmission over the next four hours during a flight, um, they're probably good for that. Yeah. Um, they're good if you use them often or uh, test often so you don't miss the window. Right. Um, but I think the, um, the practicalities of really running the test often enough um, often forces uh, labs to lean back on molecular methods. Molecular methods like yours. Yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things about antigen is since it is so viral load dependent, it is interesting, like you said, for say school screening where you could kind of look at, if it's positive, their viral load is high and they're probably most transmissible. Mm-hmm. Is there like a correlation? Yeah, yeah I think there is, there's likely to be a correlation with transmissibility and viral load. And that's the real value of these is identifying the, the transmitters uh, within the population need to be taken out of circulation. But mm. I think the... Um, um, you know, it, for for managing the full population of patients who might present in a hospital and clinic setting, I think uh, molecular is probably a better option because it, you don't have to choose between test modalities depending on the clinical presentation. Right, right. <clears throat> it's just that you know it's working. Mm-hmm. What? Um, so now you have this four in one. Yeah. So t- flu A, flu B. Within flu, and let's talk about each of these pieces. So within flu A and flu B, first of all, do you think we're going to see flu? Uh, you know, all bets are off. I think the the concern this season that's different from last season is that kids are going back to school in larger right. numbers. And we know that that correlates with incubation of influenza and broader spread of influenza. Who knows what the impact of social distancing, masking... Uh, will have on transmission of influenza. But 
Um, I think most are concerned that we really might see some, at least some flu this year. Yeah. yeah. That will confuse the picture. Right. And flu A and flu B in your swab, are there any subtypes? You said you're looking also at avian. They're all kind of all the targets are yeah. in there? Yeah. Yeah. So all the avian strains of concern are in the influenza A category. Got it. And that's the most variable influenza subtype. Influenza B is really pretty steady. Uh, doesn't just doesn't vary. Um, and, um, and, and so that's less, less of a concern from a genetic drift standpoint. RSV A and B, a little bit of drift, not much, uh, and then of course COVID with its own drift problem. But, right. Um, it's uh, they they vary a lot depending on the on the type of virus. Got it. But your four fourplex type test is pretty good at not missing those. The ones that are likely to vary the most. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Tell me about RSV a little bit. What's going on? Why are we seeing so much RSV in? Good question. You know, yeah. it's it's kind of it's out of season for RSV. RSV usually happens a little bit before the flu season and then lasts a little longer than the flu season. Often peaks a little earlier than the flu season than flu itself. This year we're seeing it, you know, it's out of order. Mm. <laughs> it's it's been happening in in places um all over the country and it's been happening during the summer months, which is unusual. So um, who knows what the factors behind that are? Is it opportunistic? Who knows? But the bottom line is that um, we're seeing it in, in, in places all over the world, really, uh, in, um, in, in, at a time of year when it's unusual to see it. You know, it's interesting to think about innate immunity and that idea of viral interference that we talked about. If kids are generally hyper clean now and mm -hmm. kept apart yeah. and masked up and all that. I wonder if they aren't exposed to the standard cold coronaviruses and so on, and they're not getting that little shot of interferon that, and maybe RSV is taking advantage of that. That's not an unreasonable thought. Mm -hmm. Of course, that doesn't mean I'm advocating throw the masks away because no, no. COVID is quite uh, yeah. a different beast. But you know, relating to that then comes the question, why test for RSV? So in other words, You've got flu A, flu B, RSV, COVID. An adult shows up, they've got a fever, mm -hmm. muscle aches, they feel like they've been hit by a train. Yeah. My top concern in that person would be well, a COVID or flu. Yeah. Why is RSV important in that? RSV uh, can produce uh, flu-like symptoms with fevers and, and upper respiratory symptoms, prolonged cough uh, in all age groups, more common and much more dangerous in, in very young children, um, two years of age or younger. But also, as we get older, in the nursing home populations and uh, those above the age of 70 or 75, RSV becomes a bigger problem. It can be a major cause of morbidity and mortality in the, uh, in the elderly. Uh, <clears throat> we need a vaccine for RSV. Yeah. Uh, but the bottom line is that um, it's in the in the in-between age groups, it's less common to produce flu-like symptoms, but it does produce them and it can be in the mix. Um, and a lot of the cases being reported now are in multiple different age groups. So that's important because if you're, if someone comes in with those symptoms typically, and they just get a COVID test, they don't, you're, you're going to miss RSV. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's a different category of thing. Flu, same thing. If you miss yeah. flu, it's a whole different category of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people now who've been testing negative for COVID, but who've had 
symptoms that mm -hmm. they sure sound like COVID. Yeah. And yeah. they're getting molecular tests. I don't think they're false negative tests. Right. So could they have part of this RSV kind of little mini pandemic that's going Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So this this test actually solves that question. It, it really helps, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't detect all the other common cold viruses in this one test that don't typically produce fevers, so... Um, but it really helps with the cases where that look flu-like, where you really feel the myalgias, the muscle aches and pains, the fevers, All the cytokine-driven symptoms. Got it. So is there anything else about this test that you wanted to let us know about that clinicians should know, that patients should know about? Well, I think it, it's, um, it, it is a very sensitive tool. It's one that they can, I think, depend on. They won't have to question gee, did I miss that case because I used a less sensitive test? Do I have to reflex test if it's negative? It's kind of a one-and-done uh, approach. Um, <clears throat> the, so, so I think that the level of confidence that, that providers will have from the result will be fairly high given that it incorporates uh, the really sensitive technology. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and it's also reasonably fast. It's about 30 minutes. So it's pretty it's, quick. Um, you know, for all that technology, all those targets, um, all that strain coverage in 30 minutes uh, is, it's, it's pretty impressive. And it also, I think, is, is technology that we can count on going forward for, you know, once we're out of Delta, there may be other pandemic strains and other variants that come in, both for flu and for COVID. And so sort of future-proofing the technology was the goal with this, and we think that, that it'll really prepare us well for future waves of variants and other things that might happen uh, going forward. Yeah, so a mix of future-proofing, present availability, it's common, it doesn't take too long, it's not super expensive beyond you know, what you would expect normal testing, mm -hmm. it's standard of care in many places. Yeah. Um, so you guys have really, and I've talked to a lot of people in the industry who work in large health systems. And to a one, when I mentioned, oh, you know, we've done some shows with Cepheid and Dave, and they go, oh, I love those guys. I, lo <laughs> I love my gene expert, I love it. And you, do, you rarely hear that about diagnostics. Yeah. You know, So whatever you're doing, you're doing a great job. It's really gratifying to see that see the impact now. That's and, what we live for, really. It, it, you know, and I've talked with some of your staff too, and they're like, they're passionate about this stuff. Yeah. It's a little scary. Yeah. Uh, and you, you guys didn't ask for COVID, but you stepped in and really, it's been wonderful to see, you know? Yeah, it's really pushed our, our um, installed base, our, our users worldwide to new levels. And, and I think, um, you know, we're, we're going to be better equipped because of that. We're going to be better equipped for the next pandemic. And I, I, it. I think it's... Um, it, it really is. I think it's it's part of our responsibility in the diagnostics industry to sort of future proof our our testing strategies to build to build in broad range capability so that we don't miss these things the next time. We'll be better prepared to launch testing that at least provides a stopgap measure while we're developing super specific tests for a given outbreak. Having something that tells you. I can't tell you which coronavirus that is. I can't tell you if it's SARS-CoV-3 or MERS-CoV-2. Um, that's a coronavirus. Having that capability, at least as an, on an interim basis in the face of a new outbreak, would be uh, really valuable. And oh. having it on a widespread basis uh, to be used on multiple systems throughout the world would really 
offer a lot during the next uh, time we have to encounter this. And that's what you guys are doing. Yeah. 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 We just uh, we we just started a new project that we announced on uh, with support from BARDA, uh, which uh, is a government agency that's super focused on pandemic preparedness. And they want us to build a broad range sort of pan coronavirus cartridge that covers um, current, you know, seasonal coronaviruses, the four, the big four that are, that are that, that have been been with us for thousands of years. Yeah. Um, they also want us to detect all of the, the members of the um, Sarbeco, uh, Sarbeco virus family, which is the SARS bat coronavirus complex. Um, to call out specifically SARS-CoV-1, SARS-CoV-2, um, but also provide the ability to detect a future SARS-CoV-3 or 4 uh, built into that, 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 that cartridge. And then also to provide coverage for the MERS family should that become a more widespread problem. So right now, none of the tests that are designed to pick up SARS-CoV-2 will detect MERS. Right. There are different families of virus. So we need to have, for pandemic preparedness, really, really need to have the capability to cover the full range of things that we might encounter in the future. Okay, this I, I really want to emphasize this because if we continue to just be myopic in how our tests actually perceive viral invaders, we are going to miss the resurgence of MERS or a new SARS-1 type syndrome that's mm -hmm. highly fatal, high case fatality, but maybe is transmitted when you're asymptomatic, yeah. which is the worst possible scenario. Right. How are you ever gonna catch that if you don't have something that's broad enough to detect it? And that's what you're working yeah, on for the future. Exactly. So that, yeah. that, that's that's gonna be very important. And I'd love it if um if you come up with some new stuff, if you come back and tell us about it, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I'd be happy to. Really fabulous. Yeah, but the, the fluvid test, the fourplex, because we're not done with the current pandemic. Yeah. I'm already <laughs> and, and, on to the next one. And we're probably not going to be done for a while. We're going to probably see, you know, the seesaw uh, for the next couple of years. But um, as it kind of builds itself in to become a new endemic virus, it'll become it'll become the big five, not the big four. But can we talk about yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, because, because I just did a show on this about endemifying yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, COVID. So the big four coronaviruses that have been with us for thousands of years – could it, is it reasonable to assume that it's, when they first hit the human population, it was SARS-ish? Probably, Probably so. right? Yeah, we, we, we think so. It's, uh, some of them came from animal reservoirs that, um, at least based on our molecular clock and evolution experiments, uh, we think came from animal reservoirs that are known to be associated with human illness after transmission from, uh, from a zoonotic uh, source. So... Um, we, you know, it's, it's pretty likely that they did cause havoc when they first hit the population. And um, the, the nature of these viruses is that they just adapt over time to become, as, as you develop increasing amounts of herd immunity, uh, and uh, uh, they, they continue to, to vary over time, they adapt to the population to become less pathogenic. Mm. And uh, so I think the expectation is, and who, who knows how long this will take, but that we will see waves of, of variants and transmission in different parts of the world. Antibody titers will decline. You'll see some new variants take advantage of that. But each time, the infections have become less pathogenic, less severe. 
And ultimately, maybe hopefully three or four years from now, will be at a point where it's just like the common cold, like the other coronaviruses that are out there. Yeah, that's that's the dream, right? And it might it might be that in advance of that, the large majority of the population is safe from severe disease. Yeah, having been a combination of natural infected, vaccinated, yep. potentially boosted with vaccine. Yep. And one of the questions, so this I thought was an interesting thing because SARS-CoV-2 doesn't typically kill or injure young kids right. typically, although there's yeah. always exceptions. Yeah. The fact that um, like the big four coronaviruses that already infect us as colds, it, there may come a time when we don't need to vaccinate anymore mm -hmm. because elders yeah. will have natural immunity from the combination of vaccine in the past and natural infection. And yeah. every child who's born will eventually get infected yeah. in a common cold type way so that the whole population cycles through and gets immunity against severe disease. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I, I hope happens. Right, yeah. right. So there's hope. And I think people yeah. uh, are very frustrated with Delta, you know? Yeah. Even I was like starting in the, in the spring, I'm like, this thing's over. Yeah. We got the yeah, vaccine, it's great. Yeah, we all were. Right, yeah. and and uh, and it's good that, you know, I think we're seeing increased vaccination rate. Do you, do you think, um, and last question, vaccination, you gotta do it, right? Absolutely. Please, my friends, get vaccinated. You know, now more than ever, right? It's just really important to protect yourself, <clears throat> protect the population against uh, the emergence of future variants, reduce the the overall transmission pressure in the population. Uh, even though the the vaccines don't completely block infection, they still prevent at least a big chunk of them. And uh, they also seem to really suppress um, severe symptoms. And uh, very likely, even among those who experience breakthrough, the viral loads are probably pretty low. We've heard a lot about, oh, the viral loads are high and you know, just as high as in, in vaccinated patients. But I think that's a very select subset that's of patients. Right. We're looking at just a few the who, got, who got really sick. Yeah. Yeah, that viral load correlates with level of severity. We know that. But there's a ton of people who didn't get infected and maybe a, another ton that got infected but just got a, a smidge of virus and are probably not transmitting very much. And so we're much better off getting vaccinated. Yeah. And I just think um, I, I encourage all of my friends and colleagues to do so. How, how That's really well put. I mean, how do you feel about people with naturally occurring previous infection needing to be vaccinated? I think if you look at the the data on 20-year-old um, experiments in the UK with natural uh, seasonal coronaviruses that were common cold viruses being used in human inoculation experiments. Nice. Where volunteers got inoculations of one of the common cold coronaviruses and they followed their course for a year. They looked at them get sick and recover as they always did and then rechallenged them about a year later. And uh, they, uh, about half of them actually experienced reduced symptoms, but they still got infected mm -hmm. with, uh, with those same strains of virus. Right. So the experience is that very likely you experience a decline in immunity after natural infection that doesn't completely block reinfection. Correct. And so um, 
in order to maintain that level of neutralization that you would really like to help avoid infection from the outset, you need to have higher antibody titers than natural infections can typically produce. Mm. Um, so, and that's what vaccines do. They produce unnaturally high levels of these neutralizing antibodies. And that's why I think boosters uh, should be um, implemented as well, especially in vulnerable populations, because they'll produce unnaturally high levels of antibody right, right. that will be better at blocking the virus right. than, than even natural infection. Right. You know, so the, so the way I like to think of that, I, all of that is true. I think the way I like to think of that is um, in our most vulnerable people, even if you've been naturally infected, you know, you might get reinfected, but your symptoms might be less. You, yeah. know, you might be protected against yeah. severe disease. But if you really want to put a dent in transmission and be as likely as you can be to have not getting severe disease and even not just getting knocked out for a week, yeah. uh, at least one dose of the mRNA vaccines or a J&J is is a is reasonable now if the one thing i will say is i think there are a lot of people who reach out to me going you know i don't want to be mandated to vaccinate when i got naturally infected i'm a young person i'm otherwise low risk mm -hmm. and it's kind of like we want to be able to have a little nuance in our conversation i know cdc yeah. can't do that because right. they're not yeah. allowed to basically yeah they have to give a very monolithic but i i do find that there's a lot of when when we get too proscriptive yeah. people tend to shut down you know yeah absolutely i i, I think um you know, there are advantages to natural infection. You're going to develop T-cell responses to proteins that are not in the vaccine. Right. You're going to develop T-cell responses to nucleocapsid and other proteins that are, that are going to be effective. Um, you're going to develop IgA responses in the respiratory tract that right. may be effective. Um, who knows how long those will last. But I think all in all, between vaccination maybe some natural infection on top of vaccination, including all those additional T-cell epitopes and IgA responses and future encounters with future variants, this is, we're gonna develop some pretty solid immunity against, uh, against this. Mm, it's this whole holistic combination of things that yeah. I think is gonna bring us to endemicity. Yeah. That's a word. Uh, where can people go to learn more about your thing at uh, they can go to our website, cephia.com, yeah. uh, and, and learn more about it. And um, I think, uh, you know, the, the good news is a lot of their local hospitals and clinics now have the technology, and they're all asking for more stuff, and we're working as fast as we can to make more stuff. Um, but um, we, uh, we really do uh, feel responsible for helping uh, to fill, fulfill our part of the diagnostic uh, uh, pathway uh, and really achieve uh, the right level of sensitivity and performance we think will be necessary to really stamp this thing out. I love it, man. Science. Science. So much science. Guys, Dog here. Share this video. Um, go to the website if you want to learn more. I'm going to put links to other shows I've done with Diamond Dave. Uh, he always teaches us a lot. Let us know in the comments what you your questions that we can ask him next time he's on the show or I can do a show on. Uh, and I love you guys. We are out. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Z. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. 
it, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I want to hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.